This week's podcast is brought to you by Massive. That's spelled M-A-S-V. The fastest way to send and receive massive video files. Send uncompressed dailies, locked pictures, DCPs, and more with Massive. Keep listening to hear how you can receive 100 gigabytes for free towards your next transfer. Good morning, Vietnam! Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi-de-ho, all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy, Ron Dawson, coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and formidable conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the worlds of film and television. As a filmmaker myself, I've always been drawn to the documentary format. Like many people who start out in this business, my first work was as a wedding filmmaker. Then I moved into doing corporate work. I was particularly adept at getting to the emotional heart of a story with my wedding clients, and that skill transferred over nicely with my corporate clients. I've had the ability to do narrative shorts here and there, but docs were my bread and butter when filmmaking was my main gig. They have such an amazing ability to inspire, educate, and even affect change. Personally, I also have quite an interesting journey of faith. Being raised by a single mom who grew up in the South going to Baptist churches, I was destined to be part of the greater Christian church. I think my spiritual journey has had three or four major evolutions over the years. I'm currently in what one would call a deconstruction phase. That's essentially when a person finds themselves in the process of reevaluating the foundations of their belief, whatever that belief is. So when you take my love of documentaries and combine that with the faith journey I've had, it's ironically and probably providential that I should come across a trailer for a film about one of the most controversial aspects of the Christian church, conversion therapy, and then a week later get an invitation from the PR people of said film to have the filmmakers on my show. The film is the Blumhouse Pictures and Ryan Murphy exec-produced Netflix documentary, Pray Away. I was active in the gay community for 13 years. I was in it for six years, then struggled for five years before finding true freedom. It was 13 years for me. Four for me. We both walked away from it. I personally came out of the homosexual lifestyle. And we're just saying that if you want to change, there is a way to do it. I spent a lot of time thinking, how did I believe that? We were the leaders of the ex-gay movement. We believed that something must have happened to make you gay. Parents are learning about a program called Exodus, which claims to convert gays. We were promoting an idealized version of life. Gay people could be saved. I became a figurehead for this movement. My role was to get the message out. Homosexuality was changeable. I ached to be loved and to love a man. Today on the show, I'm pleased to have the producer and the writer-director of the film, Jess Devaney and Christine Stolakis, respectfully. As you might expect from a topic like this and having two guests to boot, we really get into some thoughtful topics and there's a lot to cover. So, without further ado, 
Let's get into it. See you on the other side. I normally start off with, like, what is your first movie memory? And I want to get to that question. But, you know, given this particular topic, I wanted to know, for both of you, do you guys have any kind of religious background from youth or whatnot? And if so, how has it changed and how has it informed your making of this film? Great. So I can start by saying that Bailey was um, inspired in part by my own religious upbringing. I was specifically raised Catholic. And what brought me to make Crayway is that I have an uncle who came out as trans as a child. He was brought to conversion therapy as a kid. Um, his experience actually took place less in the church, so to speak, and more in an actual licensed uh, psychiatrist's office because he came hmm. out during a time when every therapist was essentially a conversion therapist. This is like oh in the gosh. 60s. Um, okay. So, uh, and all of the toxic uh, messages he was getting in the therapy office was confirmed, so to speak, by his religious community, which in my case, in, in his case, was Catholic. Um, so I also know that Catholicism has brought my family, um, and religion more generally, um, has brought my family a lot of purpose and a sense of home and um, a language to, to speak to something greater than themselves. And I've seen in my own family the damage that happens when something is done in the name of religion that actually teaches someone that something about them is sick and sinful. Um, and how that's affected my own religious life, I would say, is private to me. Um, and I, you know, I sort of I hold my religious life to be private, but um, I also, but I do know firsthand just the power of religion um, in people's lives. How about you, Jess? Thanks for sharing, Christine. Um, that must have been, and I'll definitely get to your answer, Jess, um, but in following up about your uncle, because that was definitely on my list of questions, did he end up going through the whole process and quote unquote convert or was he able to get out of it before uh completing it for lack of a better word uh yeah so a few things my uncle uh identified as male his whole life but felt in his language like he was born in the wrong body and i think right. if he had received gender affirming care uh he would have transitioned to female at some point in his life but he did not so just mm -hmm. kind of that's one thing to sort of clarify okay um, got it and he spent his whole life believing that changing to cis and straight um was the right thing to do and he struggled his whole life because of course mm. he could not yeah. do that um so he bought into the ex-lgbtq belief system mm -hmm. for his whole life um and he suffered tremendously there's mm. um a lot i could say about that but i can say that his mental health really really suffered um yeah. and um he suffered from like depression anxiety and suicidal ideations and obsessive compulsive disorder and addiction all stuff that's very common for people that go through this type of experience uh and he just he never made it out of the beliefs and that's something that the belief that change is not only possible but again the right thing to do the only way to not be sick um quote unquote of course we know that the real sickness is transphobia and homophobia but um he never arrived there 
um, because he grew up in this his whole childhood, you know, and that it's, it's a hard belief system to kick. Um, mm. And something we hope the film captures is that uh, conversion therapy and this movement is so much more than that moment you sit down individually with one psychologist or one pastor acting as a pseudo psychologist who's unlicensed. It's a belief system that really sinks in into the deepest parts of you and becomes a part of your most intimate of moments. And that's why suicide and self-harm are such a part of this world. Um, mm. And that was something, you know, this, uh, the self-harm aspect he struggled with on his own um, through addiction you know, self-harm manifests itself in a lot of different ways. We address that in our film. Um, you know, we know that kids that go through this are more than twice as likely to have attempted suicide. So that was the part of this movement I lived and we were really close. I grew up near him. I know some people have an uncle who, you know, lives across the country or something like that. Um, but I saw him every day until I was about eight years old when I moved to another part of our country. Um, but he was, um, one of my best friends and my babysitter growing up. So I really saw how much he suffered. Um, he was also a really wonderful person. So I saw lots of really beautiful things about him too. But um, yeah, that um, that's a little bit about him, I guess, and how yeah. he led me to the film. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing. How about you, Jess? Um, yeah, I, I grew up evangelical and queer um, in Florida. And so this world was really familiar to me um when I first got in touch with Christine and sort of saw who she had access to it was like all household names whose like books and speeches were very much part of the milieu that that I was raised in and um and I was yeah I was just really excited to get to be a part of telling the story of the harms and trauma of of conversion therapy um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for either of you, do you, I know, Christine, you say your, your, your religion is, is private. So maybe if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. But I was going to, you know, do you, do either of you still like identify as quote unquote evangelical or Christian in some form or manner? I don't identify as Christian, okay. definitely not evangelical. Um, um, yeah. I, I, I think like, there's a lot of the the idea of organizing our lives around values and principles mm -hmm. is still really meaningful to me um but i i find those um in in more like intersectional political spaces than religious communities now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one thing ron I, I will add to that is um Sometimes when people ask me that question in the press, I think partly what they're asking is about what it means to say conversion therapy is wrong, but still want to participate in organized religion. And mm -hmm. one thing I will say is if anyone is listening to this, who's either in the XLGBTQ movement or conversion therapy movement or experiencing homophobia and transphobia in some kind of evangelical or Christian or religious space and wants to hold dear organized religion, but can't stand as they shouldn't have to stand treatment that's again, homophobic or transphobic is that, and I, sometimes what I want that person to hear is there is a world outside of, um, 
the XLGBTQ movement or those belief systems where you can participate in organized religion, be that Christianity, Judaism, et cetera, et cetera, and be fully affirmed for who you are. There are organized, um, pardon me, there are churches, there are synagogues, there are mosques that will accept you and not just accept you, but fight for your rights and dignity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when you're in this very Christian, conservative Christian, conservative religious world, you get the message that there is no life outside of it, um, right. especially if you are queer in some way. Um, and if you, the way in which you participate in something greater than yourself is through organized religion, there absolutely is a world where you can you know, practice Christianity and be LGBTQ in a way that people, again, fight for your rights um, emphatically. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the art of filmmaking and creating movies and is is you know the power to communicate so many different types of belief systems or to bring to light issues that are going on in the world around you. And I really love how you guys um how you two did that with this particular film and another films that I I've seen like it. And, and so, you know, perhaps that's my segue into, you know, how was it that each of you actually got into filmmaking? Like, what was it for you? Was it something that you always had a desire to do? Was it something that came, that came later uh, in life? How was it that came about in your lives? Um, For me, you know, it came, I came to filmmaking through organizing and, mm-hmm. and sort of political work, work that I was, I was doing at the time. And film really felt like a way, you know, coming from a very religious background where, where stories organize our worldviews and we shape and they shape our behaviors and ideologies, you know, the opportunity to offer forward new stories that can disrupt some of those paradigmatic stories um, was was really appealing to me. Yeah, I um, I was not that kid that grew up thinking, you know, I got to become the next Martin Scorsese or else I'll, you know, right. not feel like I'm fulfilled, um, you know, carried around a camera all the time. I um, tried on like a lot of different types of art uh, throughout my life. And also um, took an interest in politics. I studied cultural anthropology in undergrad uh, and I studied dramatic literature. I tried my hand at theater and improv comedy and painting and music and um, was just always interested in the intersection of art and social change. And it Mm. was when I found specifically documentary film um, that, and, and then had the confidence to go for it in terms of trying to make a career in documentary film, which is hard. Um, that's when I really felt like I'd found my calling. It's the expression of all the things I just mentioned. Um, and it's a really special thing to get to do, even though it can be really, uh, hard. It's definitely an under-resourced industry overall, but it's a really special one. You said you did improv comedy. How long, how long was that a a goal of yours? That was in college for about four years. I was pretty serious about it. Um, and I loved it. I took a lot of classes at two improv theaters in mm-hmm. New York City called Upright Citizens Brigade and the Magnet yep. Theater. Um, TV's popular. And as was true for me in a lot of my artistic endeavors, there became a point where 
there are people who are doing it more socially mm -hmm. uh, just to have community, which is great. And then there are people who are like going to get on SNL no matter what. And I looked at both groups and thought, oh, I don't really feel like I'm either of these people who want right. to keep doing this and not take it so seriously. And I don't really want to be on SNL. That, that's often when I would move on to the next artistic endeavor um, and figure out if I was really interested in pursuing that one for a lifetime. Do any of the skills that you learned in that come into play in the work you do now? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, How so? <laughs> well, if people have done, if anyone's done improv comedy, they probably know that just like anything, you can take it to be like a religion to the <laughs> point of excess. Um, right. uh, and something that's so special about improv is this concept of yes anding, which is the right. idea that like when you're in a scene, the way you make sense of a scene is you, and you're making it up on the spot is you always take what someone says and believe it. And if so, someone comes in and is like, my face is on fire. You're not like, how could your face be on fire? You're like, right. oh my God, mine too. So, and then you build together. So I think in terms of the role of a director, now a lot of your job is to make space for other people's ideas and really consider them and always let your own vision be a little challenged to make it better as time goes on. And I think improv helped me stay really spacious in my mind for new ideas. Um, and I think it's just good to laugh and laughing is therapeutic, especially when you're working on hard things. And yeah. when I, yeah, working on this film, I laughed a lot uh, with that's our team to, to stay sane. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's funny. The idea of yes, anding is very therapeutic. It's popular in like couples counseling, relationship <laughs> counseling, because it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's acknowledging someone else's feelings and also seeing something else too so i think that's you know particularly for something like this i feel like that's important um you're talking about like the intersection of so like social issues and film and whatnot and you know that made me think about i was reading um about uh, your company just multitude films and you write you write on your site we're one of the few production companies that integrates a social change orientation and impact strategy from the early stages of our involvement in a project. What, what does that mean? And how does, does that drive the kind of projects that you create? So, yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, it, it, it sort of works in two levels. One mm -hmm. is um, a real concern with authorship and that the core creative team has a stake in the communities that will be most impacted by that film. Um, it also means that we're running all of our productions like we wish the industry looked so that our, our productions high, you know, prioritize hiring BIPOC folks, queer folks, people with disabilities, women at all levels and all roles. Um, and it also means that, you know, no, no film of course is a silver bullet solution to any political issue. Um, so we, you know, over time, maybe working on several films, uh, looking at um, the, you know, looking at the intersection of LGBTQ and faith, or or looking at, um, uh, you know, um, gender-based violence, or anti-Black racism, or or you know, government overreach, or whatever. And it also means that we are involving um, 
people who are really integrated in the movement work um, early on in production. And it doesn't mean that like that can that can influence and, and shape creative in a lot of different kinds of ways, but it it means that we're tapped into the work that they're doing and we understand where they're at, what the priorities are of, of, of a particular movement of, over the course of the several years that production takes. So we're continuing to build that relationship. We're sharing about our different strategic approaches, learning how they complement each other. For example, in Pray Away, our partners, um, NCLR Born Perfect, the Trevor Project, GLAD, PFLAG, having conversations with them early on in production so we, we understand each other's strategies and, and create an overall kind of shared strategy in the way that our cultural change approach with the film um, in terms of changing hearts and minds um, complements their legal and policy work when it comes to conversion therapy bans. Um, and why that's important is conversion therapy bans, you know, work in a couple of ways. One is bringing into public consciousness that conversion therapy is alive and still gaining momentum today and happening all around the country. Um, when they're passed, they're very limited and that they only prevent conversion therapy from happening um, by licensed practitioners. And we know that the majority of conversion therapy takes place, like you see in the film, in ministries and peer-to-peer -peer spaces um, by unlicensed uh, religious counselors. So, um, so our cultural change approach in tandem with their legal and policy approach um, has, has a, you know, can really amplify the potential impact. There's one uh, person in the film who you highlight uh, who, and, and this was an aspect of the film that I thought was interesting because you could, you could look at the title and the premise and the trailer and you could think the film, and I think it's largely about this, about like the dangers of conversion therapy and the people who have been quote unquote, I don't want to say rescued from it, but who got out of it somehow, right? And the journey that they went through. But you have one person in the, and I think he actually starts the film who is still very much into it, for lack of a better word. But the way he goes about doing it is, I hate to say feels nicer, feels more, more accepting, whatnot. But he, and I don't remember his name offhand, but it was, I, I appreciated that, oh, the film is showing one aspect of the, of the of debate that's still on the side of of someone or groups of people who believe for whatever reason that it's not the way that God intended for lack of a better word. Right. And so you have this one person who has these like home uh, worship uh, concerts or whatever. And he, he's doing a lot to help people, you know, come out of this life. Uh -huh. um, but he doesn't, but he's, he's, he's starkly contrasted to the traditional con conversion therapist Tell me a little bit about this person. You know, what was that? Was it always your idea to have like at least one person who would still be quote unquote for coming out of the life? And it was just a matter of finding the, the right person to represent that. Or in the process of making this documentary, you came across him, you thought his story was so interesting. I was really curious about your strategy of including his story in the film. 
yeah. and, you remember, and I assume you remember his name. I can't remember his name. I apologize. I would have looked it up, but no problem at all. Yeah, so it's Jeffrey yeah. McCall. Okay, um, right. Yeah. Great questions. A few things. So yeah. So a few things once in terms of deciding how we decided to have him in the film to build on what Jess was saying about multitude um, for company. One thing I share with Multitude in terms of a general orientation is the importance of building a team that has lived this issue, the issue that you're telling in your film in some way. And one team member that we brought on early was a survivor of conversion therapy who also has a decade or so of experience uh, organizing within evangelical communities on this issue and other issues to fight for LGBTQ rights and dignity. Um, in more evangelical spaces. So I say that because I worked very closely with him to, uh, and with Multitude, just included, to think about how we wanted to represent the movement today that felt accurate, that felt emblematic of what the movement has grown into looking like, that um, captured what leadership continues to look like, which actually is the same thing that leadership looked like in the past, which is an example of internalized homophobia or transphobia wielded outward in some way. This is really a movement of people who have been hurt then hurting other people. So uh, we arrived at Jeffrey specifically because he founded and runs a current ex-LGBTQ organization called the Freedom March. Um, and I agree that the, the rhetoric the approach of the Freedom March does have more loving, affirming language, more language that acknowledges the idea of equity, of um, diversity, of inclusion. But when you poke at what they do, the same message of the importance of changing one sexuality or gender identity to cis and straight in order to belong is there. And that actually is the same thing that the ex-LGBTQ movement has been pushing forward in different ways for decades. Um, so that's part, you know, th those are all things that we talked about a lot in terms of choosing to have Jeffrey in the film. Another part of Jeffrey uh, that um, I appreciate in some ways is that he was willing to go on the record. He was willing to be in the film. And a lot of people practice this in secret. So that's another reason he's in the film. And of course, I really disagree with him in terms of the consequences of his actions. Uh, I think he, he thinks he's doing the right thing, which is a very shared thing among leaders. Um, and conversion therapy undeniably causes pain and trauma. So we tried to capture both of those things in the film. Uh, and he opens the film and closes it because his organization does exemplify this kind of newer, hipper, hipster feeling um, movement that still practices the same belief, still practices the same things overall and pushes forward the same belief systems overall. Jess, did you wanna add anything to that? I think there's the, the, other, the other thing for Jeffrey and, and also the millennial survivor in the film, Julie Rogers, uh, we really wanted to prioritize demonstrating um, the extent to which uh, conversion therapy is located in the present and and it became really clear through the making of the film what um 
what an overwhelming like surprise this was to so many people like that can't be happening today and when you only see some of the sort of older generation of, of defected leaders um, it can give it can kind of reiterate that false um, false impression so we really wanted this movie to like unfold in, in the present uh, I, I feel like it's important for me to say, like, as of now, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says freedom, but it's not at all connected to <laughs> my T-shirt's more related to racial justice than, <laughs> than that. as you that, say. That that's like, that's yeah. exactly what is really notable about the movement today. Jess, I think yeah. you're about to say the same thing. Did I interrupt you? Go ahead. Yeah, it's very notable. There is an adoption of language that we see in other social movements the movement mm -hmm. for black lives for lgbtq rights right right and i think it can make these organizations look more enticing to young people who are looking sure. for a place and that in some ways makes them all the more powerful and problematic because those same messages of needing to change in order to belong exist and again that we have lived all of us have lived who work on this film just how damaging those messages are yeah yeah uh one of the members of my facebook group when we asked this question when i told them i was going to be interviewing you two which was if those participating in the making of this film did they find the process of making the film healing or was it traumatic or some combination of both you know she said that you know she would think revisiting this kind of trauma would be triggering and she wanted to know if those doing the film were conscious of that and provided the support needed to get through the process. We'll be back to the show shortly, but first, a word from the people who help keep the lights on. Today's movies and TV shows operate in terabytes. So why do most file sharing providers cap data transfers to a couple hundred gigs? Modern filmmaking runs on massive files, and massive files called for massive transfer. Spelled M-A-S-V, massive is a file sharing solution for those who want to move heavy, uncompressed videos through the cloud without limits. No subscriptions, no complicated IT setups. Massive's pay-as-you-go model is designed to ship big files in record time at 25 cents per gig, and all you need is an internet connection. Sign up for Massive today using massive.io slash AOTF and get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's M-A-S-S-I-V-E dot I-O slash A-O-T-F as in under the frame for 100 gigabytes of free transfer. Now back to the show. If those participating in the making of this film, did they find the process of making the film healing or was it traumatic? Well, first of all, I think that's a really great question and I think it's generous. One thing I know is that when you make a film about that relates to trauma you've experienced firsthand, there is a healing aspect to that. And you can't look to the filmmaking process to perfectly tend to your own mental health. Uh, and I've watched filmmakers who work on, as so many of us do, work on films that are really related to our personal lives that often intersects with pretty intense trauma, um, try to address their own mental health through filmmaking. And there are parts of filmmaking that can be incredibly moving, getting to 
for example, interview Julie Rogers, the survivor of our film, for me was a really incredibly moving and even healing experience because Julie did survive. You know, I, I often thought that I would look at her and think my, you know, my uncle passed away right before I went to film school. And in some ways he didn't survive. So spending a lot of time with someone who did and getting to represent what it looks like to get out of this world and to continue life was very important for me. And I went to therapy the entire time I was making this film. So I had a place to work out some of the stuff that was really, really hard. Um, that is hard to work out when you're working in an industry that also intersects with capitalism and intersects with taste and judgment and, um, you know, the day-to-day -day slog of having a real job that is tiring sometimes. So yeah, it was, I think, um, it could be hard and when it was really hard, I was really glad to have support both from the filmmaking, our filmmaking team who've all become dear friends and from outside help. And I, I'll add, like, yeah. I'll add to that. Um, Christine, I think spoke beautifully to what it means to, for a team who has experiences, direct experiences with the, with an issue like this um, and what sort of it looks like to care for oneself when digging into these kind of traumatic issues. And then in terms of the folks in the film, you know, we really uh, consulted with a lot of um, people working at the intersection of faith and LGBTQ dignity, or I, I'll say religious trauma and LGBTQ experiences um, and really wanted to take a trauma-informed approach to our filmmaking. And also um, the purpose of the film was not to give the leaders a chance to experience healing. The purpose of the film was to demonstrate inarguably the harm caused by conversion therapy. And um, I think that that question uh, when turned to the participants in the film uh, would be best answered by them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I want to kind of talk about the process of even making a film like this, you know, a documentary of this nature. How, how do you find the people that you're going to interview? I mean, there's so many different ways you can approach a documentary, right? It can be a personal project. It could be something that is brought to you. It could be, uh, you know, a, a cause that you think is worth, you know, you know, fighting for or whatnot. And, you know, and there's so many different ways you can do a documentary. You're like, there's the Michael Moore approach. There's this kind of this approach. So for, for a film like this, how do you even go about, you know, what are the logistics involved in making a film like this? How, like how far back did you start the process? Did you have an idea of who you were going to interview? Uh, did you like make a list of these are the, like, this is the ideal people we can interview and we'll just get as many as we can. Like, how did that all come together? Yeah, I mean, I love the phrase that you hear writers talk about, which is write what you know. And I, I think good filmmaking starts with that. So you kind of filmmake what you know. And then I think from there, you also build out a team that supports the parts in which you don't know about whatever world you're covering. Um, and that just makes for a richer experience of filmmaking and a film itself. So anyway, I think what I knew was my uncle's experience. And I also 
knew when I started researching that I really wanted to shine a light on how power works in this world. That became very clear to me because it helped me understand my uncle's depth of hope that change was around the corner and then his devastation when change never happened. So that, that was clear to me early, early on that I had to shine a light on the fact that the majority of conversion therapy organizations are run by LGBTQ folks themselves who claim that they have changed. And like my research question you could say was why would anyone claim that they've changed when we know undeniably this causes pain and trauma? Um, and early on, I also really knew I wanted to weave in the story of a survivor to return to just how traumatic this is, no matter the good intentions of leaders, no matter complex questions about what accountability looks like when um, this is a movement of hurt people hurting other people, while also holding the fact that people did cause incredible pain and trauma. Um, so creatively, that was very clear to me early on. Um, and then... Um, in terms of the specifics of how we picked people, um, I also knew pretty early on that to talk about the history and the continuation of conversion therapy, that the story had to be centered on what was the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, which was Exodus International. So that became a, a limiting factor, so to speak, in terms of the storytelling and who we um, ended up profiling in the film. And like anything in film that gave us a lot in terms of a strong story, and then there are trades um, in terms of a film not being able to cover all things. So for example, you know, Exodus's leadership was largely white and largely male, for example. So, you know, that's a thing you see translated into the film. We acknowledge that in the film and talk about the way in which the movement's actually become a lot more racially and ethnically diverse, um, which is notable. Um, but you know, that, those were things that then we kind of worked on um, as a team uh, in terms of the details, but the big picture scaffolding wise, um, that's sort of, that's how I and we came to the approach that we did. I started working with Multitude in really early days too. So a lot of what I'm talking about was made in collaboration with Multitude. I guess three-ish years ago, three, three three and a half years ago. It's funny you mentioned about the racial thing. I was watching, I was watching the film with my girlfriend who's Chinese, and she, I mean, she made a comment early on, like all these people are white, like all the people in the churches, and like does it? And she often, sometimes she teases me about being like an, an ex super Christian or something like that. But she says like, like did like did any of this? happened in churches you went to and uh I, I often talk about how i was a black guy who grew up in a white world and we still yeah. pretty much went to so i haven't gone to a black church quote unquote since i was a little kid so i don't know to what extent this kind of conversion therapy campaigning happens in mass in asian churches or black churches or hispanic churches which you know, in, in certain communities, you have large churches of Koreans, large churches of Latino people, large churches of Blacks. And so did you notice that it was predominantly in white enclaves or from your research there, you, did, you do realize that there are other perhaps churches that are a predominant race that may also see a lot of this going on? So we, um, I, you know, we really wanted to focus on, on like create a kind of power analysis of mm -hmm. where the conversion therapy movement and the religious right 
intersected in terms of the strategy of the religious right to use issues like uh, homosexuality to scare and and rally their base around politicians and policies and and that intersection is like the same intersection where white supremacy and homophobia meet and so yes conversion therapy is happening in in all religious communities and christian communities of color around the country but but the way white supremacy and homophobia mutually reinforce each other's power is something that that we wanted to get at you know it's not something like we we say you know in like voiceover narrative in the film but but we hope like comes through and people noticing things like that there there is like the moment where a vet talks about you know um um sort of being tokenized for her hispanic last name and for being straight passing um or yeah straight passing and like kind of feminine um and and so things like that we wanted to to point toward this as well as the evolution of the millennial led movement actually bringing together being much more ecumenical much more intersectional in terms of class racial diversity um, gender expression not policing what is male and female in the same ways um and and you can really like it holds up a mirror to that like old guard like religious right um exodus it's model. funny yeah, yeah it's funny you mention the term white supremacy because it's such a provocative term and you know i write a lot about race related issues personally on medium and a book i did and whatnot and for some people who are white when they hear the term white supremacy they feel like you're telling them they they think of like uh the the kkk and you know pull horns in the 60s and obviously that's an aspect of it so you know when when you talk about white supremacy quote unquote what do you mean by that because i think for a lot of people some of who may be listening you know i i kind of feel like i guess the question i'm getting to is like there are there are a lot of white people who are otherwise well-meaning and really want to do what's right they want to do what's best they want to help improve this country make a better place but when they hear terms like white supremacy they get put off they feel like you're calling all white people evil and so when you use the term and you two are both white for people listening um when you use that term what do you mean by it like how would you define it i really appreciate that question um a lot of white people do get defensive in hearing the term white supremacy and feel like not seen for the efforts that they're making whatever those may be in their personal life but the the idea of white supremacy is a structural one that isn't about just individual behaviors and actions it's i use it to to point out the ways i continually benefit from structures setting up to ensure white people's privilege and supremacy over other people so that it's systems that i'm benefiting in whether i'm comfortable with that or that i'm benefiting from whether i'm comfortable with that or not and so it's my my like responsibility as a white person to continually interrogate and like disrupt those systems um but it 
it it's more of a description of our country, our 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 like you know global reality um, than a personal indictment of someone's particular actions and attitudes. Do you have any comments, Christine? Follow up or? Oh, I just co-signed. I, yeah. I would I would have said something in my own language very similar to that. And I always love hearing Jeff talk about this kind of stuff. I think she's so articulate. Yeah. Uh, so no, I just co-signed. Yeah, cool. What about you, Ron? Um, I, yeah, I would, I would code the cosine. Um, I think uh, it's funny because it really, it parallels this whole conversation that's going on in country right now about critical race theory. So many people don't even really know what it is. Uh, I mean, they, they really don't know what it is, but they have an idea of what they think it is. And even people who, even people who are, you know, genuinely for it, I've seen don't know what it is. Like when I'm on Facebook or social media and I see someone who, is for critical race theory and they define it incorrectly, I'll correct them and say, well, that's actually not critical race theory. I'll, I'll tell them about, you know, the legal backgrounds of it and, and whatnot. But I think, yeah, you know, for me, white supremacy, you know, there's another podcast that I produced for one of my clients and where we deal with diversity, equity, inclusion issues. And one of the people who came on, she's a consultant in the space and she talks about, you know, white supremacy ideology. And it really is the idea of, you know, no matter how you feel about it, this country was built on a structure that empowered people who classify as as white. And that's really like the foundation of it. And, then, and a lot of that is still ingrained, like in the DNA of the country, like even though there aren't specific, even though there are specific laws that out that outlaw racial discrimination, it doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of things ingrained within the dynamics of this country, everything from media the things you've seen in the media. I mean, like one of the things I tell people who don't, who are white, who don't think they have quote unquote white privilege is, well, when I was growing up, um, I remember giving myself the nickname Buckwheat because, you know, I liked Little Rascals. I thought it was funny as a kid and Buckwheat was funny. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized how effed up it was that a little black kid would give, his, give himself the nickname Buckwheat, right? And, you know, I never saw, for the most part, I didn't see um, black superheroes on television. Uh, I knew that they, I knew they were in the comics. So if you were a comic geek, that's something you, you would have seen, you know, as far back as the 60s. But for the most part, that's not what I was seeing on TV or the movies. Um, if you're a Native, heaven forbid, if you're a Native American, the kind of images you saw of yourself on television, same thing for if you're Asian. So part of that privilege is just how did you see yourself in media growing up? Like, and how were you, you know, there are studies that talk about little black girls, you know, the kind of dolls that they want. And, and I mean, you can just go on and on. And so I think there is this aspect of, you know, trying to, and part of it is, is language, right? Like you talked earlier, Christine, about this language that's being used in the current conversion therapy campaign that really speaks to that softer, nicer kind of speaks to the millennials of the day or, or whatnot, and like using terms freedom. And, and so language, you know, when you use the term white privilege, if you're a white person who grew up in the Appalachians and you're poor and you, you know, I grew up the son of a doctor, right? And my stepdad was an anesthesiologist and we lived in the Hollywood Hills and I went to a predominantly white school and I had all these benefits economically that a lot of white people didn't have. And so they would say, what kind of privilege did I have? And, 
And I always use the example that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow has millions of dollars and millions of dollars, more than I will probably ever have. And she's been all over the world. But as a man, I have a certain male privilege that trumps, um, no pun intended, her, 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 uh, I would say her economic privilege, if you will, right? Because there are things that she experienced as a woman that I never would experience. And I think that's been, for me, a learning experience as I've tried to be a better allies for um, equity seeking groups that I don't belong to, whether it's the LGBTQ or women, where, you know, I've said stupid things and I've had friends in those groups correct me, like, you know, particularly when it comes to women issues and, or when it comes to LGBTQ issues, things that I've said, like, that's, a, that's something where I'm still learning a lot. And, and so, uh, you know, that one of the things that I try to do is help other people get in that same space of learning, like what we all have some kind of privilege, I think, even if we are in an equity seeking group, you know, for me, I have male privilege, I'm a cis heterosexual man. And so there's lots of privileges that come with that. So it kind of feels like a long answer to your question. And, you know, this is about you guys. Uh, right. Yeah. I love that. Um, I, I really appreciate you pointing that thing out that like the intersection of our privileges and oppressions and, mm -hmm. and, you know, none of us, like most of us don't fit neatly. We wear, we wear a number of identities yeah. and we bring a number of experiences to the table. And when we're like doing movement work or political work, that the approach that, you know, honors and holds both of those without getting into kind of like oppression Olympics, but, but <laughs> to really bring like right. our, our learnings from navigating the power structures and also understanding that like in a capitalist framework, white supremacy, heteronormativity, homophobia, you know, patriarchy, these things work together to reinforce each other. So mm -hmm. we're much better at countering them when we're working together in a in a cross-section and intersectional way here what's your answer to people when they say um so one of the refrain that i often hear and i always like to i always try to play devil's advocate like i try to put myself in the other person's shoes so i'm a a white heterosexual male and it feels like now i'm the bad guy all the time like i can't say the n-word i can't you can make jokes about me, but I can't make jokes about you without being a racist. I can't make jokes about gay people. All these things that I, as a white sister or heterosexual, probably Christian man who has a good heart, can't do. What's your answer to somebody like that? You know, in terms of why is it okay for you to make fun of me, but not necessarily okay for me to do the same for you? I think for the most part, if I'm confronted with like a cis straight white guy who says something like that, my response is like, you're not my people and I'm going to turn around and walk away. Mm. Um, I'm not super invested in, in trying to like make them feel better or understand <laughs> why they need to take up less space now. Okay. Um, at different points in my life and activism that felt meaningful. And now mm -hmm. I'm like, actually, no. Um, it's okay for you to have your feelings hurt for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll you can do the work to adjust in your own therapy and wherever else. All right. Can I push back on you a little bit on that? Sure. 
So I hear what you're saying. And I, a lot of black people feel the same way. They're like, you know, go, go Google if you need to know something or whatnot. Right. Um, but one can make the argument that I hear what you're saying, but if someone like, like generally wants to know, isn't there something about helping them maybe understand something that may be hard for them to understand because of everything else that's around them. Like you may be the only person who in their purview, who has the ability to even bring them uh, so much closer to better understanding. And if your mindset is, well, you know, you're not my people turn around, go wallowing your feelings for a little bit. Could that be, you know, hurting an opportunity to, gain another ally or whatnot i'm just i'm posing that as a like a devil's advocate type of two things like the work i do the company i run the movies we make exist as these texts responding to all these kinds of questions so Mm. i feel like i'm doing that work without needing to do the interpersonal work if you and i are in a conversation and you bring like a problematic comment or joke or analysis about like dykes or queer women mm-hmm. you were in a relationship we we have common ground we've established that already right. i would want to be like hey that's here's how this lands for me or here's why you know this doesn't make sense or here's where i'm coming from and i would hope that you would do the same mm. in in relation to me right. but the picture that you painted what felt more like like random white guy mm-hmm. who is just like i'm like it's so much easier to get hired as a woman a queer woman of color now than than for me and i'm just like i don't have time for that because <laughs> you're not showing interest you're making yeah. me make you feel better and yeah that's not my job no that makes sense Do you have any thoughts on that, Christine? I'm having this memory. Jess and I were once on a train back from editing with our exceptional editor, editor Carla Gutierrez, Mm -hmm. making this film, trying to, in a nuanced way, talk a lot about a lot of issues, which does include gender. Um, And this asshole came up to us and said, um, oh, what we, our train was delayed. And he came up to us and was like, hey, do you guys want to have a sleepover? And that's sort of who I imagine, like, you know, two Wait, girls. he was a stranger? Guy. Yeah, complete stranger. This is, you know, just a Tuesday. And this happened to us. And I'm, I thought of that guy when you asked this question. Okay. And I'm not going to give that guy anything but a fuck yeah, you. Right. We're, at, we're basically at work. You Go away. I have no right. interest in bridge building in that moment. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, so I think that when you are a part of a group that experiences prejudice, oppression, and so on and so forth. You just have to make the call in terms of what's healthy and good for you in terms of when you want to engage. And Mm -hmm. by making this film, I'm sure we also show that we're ready to engage in a number of issues. But, you know, if someone comes at you yelling or with bigotry to the point where you feel truly uncomfortable and annoyed, you know, we're not robots, we're humans. And I think it's okay to say, no, go away. Um, but something I will say in terms of our filmmaking is um, something Jess and I think Jess and I share is trying to create films where people will feel a range of emotions, have a range mm. of reactions, and um, that can be frustration, anger, um, sadness, 
right. uh, et cetera. So I don't think it's also just about making everyone feel good all the time in terms of having these conversations. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, it's not that options aren't avoid conflict or, you know, make or scream. Um, right. Your, what you believe. And I think that this film is something that's something I'm really proud of in this film is that we don't do either of those things. I think we tried to give a lot of room for people to have a range of reactions while also holding that conversion therapies doesn't matter if it doesn't work. It's wrong. It mm -hmm. hurts people. It abuses people. Um, and um, that's another thing that I think can get lost in terms of these conversations around bridge building. Like that guy coming up to us, he just said a really really sexist, not okay thing. Mm -hmm. I, there's no side for me to see in terms of that behavior. Sure. He was wrong. Conversion therapy is just wrong. And we can hold space for people to feel a lot of things about it because it's complex. Yeah. Um, but I don't have to necessarily hold space on a platform at the end of a long work day for someone <laughs> who just wants to get a rise out of me. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Uh, how long ago did you guys start the process of making, making this film? It was five years ago for me, so it must be four-ish for you, Jess. Yeah, okay. And did you guys know each other? How did you two come to know each other? Were you, were you, it was an introduction at a party on a train. It was an introduction through one of our executive producers, Dan okay. Shelton, um, who it. I had worked with on a number of films. And cool. he knew that I had a personal connection to the topic and yeah. thought that Christine and I would really work well together. Now, tell me, how did Ryan Murphy and Blumhouse get involved? Like, you know, this seems, I mean, this seems like something totally of Ryan Murphy's. Um, I can see him doing something like this. It seems out of left field for Blumhouse. So I'm curious, like, how did those two get involved? And then were they the ones who took it to Netflix? Like, how did all that happen? So Blumhouse um, came on as a funder when we were in post-production. Um, hmm. And you know, their mandate, their documentary mandate at the time was like kind of, you know, documentaries about stories that kind of keep you up at night, which is, can be fairly broad, but is definitely right. prey away. Right. Um, and we were, you know, worked closely with their team throughout post-production and then um, brought the film to Netflix um, with our sales agents, Synetic, uh, uh, Eric Fox at Synetic, and, and Blumhouse also has an ongoing relationship with Ryan Murphy and, and brought, um, brought the film to him. So that was sort of the genesis of the um, Ryan Murphy and Netflix partnership. Interesting. Is there, you know, for someone who's making their own documentary or any kind of film, but particularly a documentary, is there any advice or strategy you can give to someone who they want to get their film on Netflix? Like, is there a path you can take or they want to get someone like a Blumhouse or Ryan Murphy involved? Um, or is it a matter of you just have to be at the right place at the right time? Like, cause it's always hard when you ask a question like this. Cause sometimes, you know, it's like saying, how do you get on Oprah? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, some things are more unicorns than others. I was wondering, is this something that can be gamified for lack of a better term? No. <laughs> um, if, if you get into documentary filmmaking for awards and like high profile executive producers and things like this, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, the best way to have a film 
that's successful is to define the success on your own terms hmm. and build like toward that. that success. Um, in our case, uh, success meant a wide commercial release. And we didn't know if that would happen, but that was important for our impact goals of, of changing hearts and minds and reaching a global audience on this issue. And we were, we were lucky that our, our goals came to fruition. Um, but often your first, your first place goals don't happen and you, have to iterate from there to to find the right combination of other partners to to get your film out to its audience. Do you have any thing to add to that, Christine? I think it's great. And the only thing I'd add is if you happen to be in a role of uh, being the director, just to find people that want to work with you who believe in you. Um, which sounds trite, but it's really true that um, there are a lot of people I talk to and I would say the goal, the dream is to stream, you know, that is the dream. And people would look at me like that would never happen for a first time feature director. And the people who I ended up working with are the people that said, well, maybe, yeah, let's try. Like, let's try. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And we all are realists. We all had a sense um, that that would be really hard, but Jess and Multitude believed in that. Um, our editor, Carla Gutierrez, who had just edited RBG, took a chance on wow. a new director um, because she also believed in the potential for the bigness of this distribution um, mm -hmm. and the film itself. So yeah, I think really being honest about finding collaborators who you believe in and who you really are going to collaborate with, not just list on some sheet as your team to get yeah. some grant um, is really, really important for up and coming directors. How do you, how, <laughs> I was gonna say, how do you direct a documentary? I know how, I mean, a lot of the work that I do as a filmmaker is documentary in nature, but you know, there's so many different ways when you're, I'm curious to get your take on it as, you know, a documentary filmmaker, you know, when you, when you think about traditional, a director of a narrative film, I don't want to say traditional film, as a narrative film, uh, you know, you have, okay, you're trying to get the, actors to act a certain way to deliver a line a certain way you're composing your your camera in a certain way you're, you're doing all these things that 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 feel like direction when you're directing a documentary you know you're you're asking people questions you're engaging what are the what are the things that you do as a director that imbue your vision if you will into the film uh i'm curious what your thoughts of that are it's a great question and I really appreciate it um, because sometimes when you direct documentaries, people assume they are just like born from the sky and, you know, <laughs> all you ever talk about is the issue and not the craft. Right. So um, I really appreciate that question. I would actually say it's more similar to narrative than you might think in terms of constantly thinking about style, following and in relationship to the story you're trying to tell. So it's your job to maintain that vision and then be in constant communication with the other people you're collaborating with to make sure technically speaking, aesthetically speaking, the style that you're going for that's going to help tell the story in the best possible way is achieved. So for example, with my cinematographer, Melissa Langer, who's an incredible documentary verite cinematographer, um, 
we talked a lot about focusing on close-ups when we were shooting observational film. And I said, don't worry about coverage. Don't worry, you know, in documentary, that means make sure you get the wide, make sure you get the cutaway, make sure you get the exterior, you know. Um, I, I just would say, don't worry about it. Just hold on people's faces for a few minutes at a time during these scenes. And if you feel like you're going too long, go for another minute or two. And that's how, because I knew that trying to capture people's intimate, real in the moment emotions were going to be really important for the verite to ground the verite and the undeniable trauma that stays with you after this movement. Um, and we captured some of those moments because of that approach. So there's a moment in the film where you see Julie Rogers, the survivor of the, um, of the survivor story in our film. Um, she's asked by someone helping to plan her wedding. Well, do you have any family heirlooms that you would like to include um, in your wedding? And you just see her face completely drop because she has a very, very complex relationship with her family who brought her to conversion therapy when she was 16. Um, so we wouldn't have captured that moment if my cinematographer was running around trying to get cutaways during what was a very long conversation. I just said, stay on their faces. Don't worry about anything else. We'll get cutaways later. So that sort of stuff, you know, it all adds up. There was like thousands, it feels like, of those types of decisions and pieces of direction throughout. You just also have to be constantly nimble because documentary happens in real time. So things don't always go as you plan. Yeah. So we'll end real quick with my speed round, which are fun questions, a lot lighter, and we'll get you guys out of here. Uh, we'll just ask one of them. What's a guilty pleasure television show or movie that you've seen or that you watch? I actually don't identify with uh, guilt with my pleasure. So <laughs> I, like I will That's... throw that back at you. I like that. How about you, Christine? Um, as always, I feel so synced in my soul with Jess because I was <laughs> going to say something similar, which is I think people can be so snotty about where good storytelling happens. Mm. And I think you have to look at every story that's told independently in terms of thinking through what's in there, you know, what's, right. how is the sausage made and, and what's the meal that you're getting served. So I think there can be icky content made in the most indiest of spaces. And I think there can yeah. be incredible content made in romantic comedy. So I'll shout out to my favorite romantic comedy, which is Bend It Like Beckham, which I could watch all day, every nice. day. I think it's so well made and tells really important, um, tells a really important and moving story and also makes you laugh, which is really hard. Comedy is really hard. Yeah, it is. So I love yeah. that film. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you two for taking the time. And this has been really great. Uh, I really appreciate it. The film is Pray Away. And I'll have all the links and whatnot on the website. So thank you two so very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is a pleasure, Ron. Thank you. Huge thanks to Jess and Christine for coming on. If you haven't already done so, I strongly suggest that you watch this film. Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media, and it's part of the Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, and edited, and hosted by me, Ron Dawson. For additional links and resources, check out the blog post for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. You can follow me on the Twitter and the gram at Blade Runner. That's Runner with a no. And you can follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at twitter.com slash provideo. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Go in peace and remember to love one another. Bye.